48 million family caregivers are providing 34 billion hours of care per year. And if you put a dollar value on that, you look by state, get the, you know, the home care, nursing, and so forth, that it would cost to provide that care, it's $470 billion per year. with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. Welcome, my name is Susie Stadler. I'm an architect and the executive director of At Home with Growing Older. This is our 14th season of live conversations and forums. Our topic is preparing to care as part of our overarching season topic, cultivate connection, our need for each other in later life. And of course, caregiving is at the core of this need for each other in this phase of life. I couldn't imagine somebody better than Bob Steven, the vice president at ARP for caregiving and health programs and the ARP lead for family caregiving to kick off this conversation for us. Our host is Jesse Gaskin, one of our board members and the design lead for Kaiser for patient experience at Kaiser Permanente. So welcome to both of you. Before we move into the core of this conversation, I just wanted to give you a look ahead. In November, there will be an Aging 360 workshop facilitated by me which is all about how to make your home a better friend in your aging experience and helping you to plan for living at home. Then also Dave Iverson will lead a book discussion in November about his wonderful book, Winter Stars, taking care of his mom for 10 years from age 95 to 105. Last but not least, we just launched a resource letter called Something to Write Home About, stories about the home and tips how to adapt your home to your needs as you grow older. As always, a 30-minute interview conversation between Bob and Jesse, and then we'll open it up for audience Q&A. If you need close captioning, we offer that too. And we really appreciate this opportunity for such an intimate conversation with Bob. Thank you. So without further ado, our conversation between Bob and Jesse. Thank you so much, Susie. So this conversation is going to focus on the challenges and opportunities across the arc of a family caregiver's journey and navigating the path from independence to dependence. And most of us have had experiences providing or receiving care for a loved one, whether it was a short-term illness or surgery, a transition of some sort, or coping with end-of-life issues. The one thing that's for sure is that in our lifetime, all of us will experience this. And I was wondering, Bob, if you'd be willing to share some of your own recent personal caregiving experiences. Sure, Jesse. And first off, thank you for having me. It's great to be joining you all. Yeah, I, I think, you know, my 
experiences, and I say experiences plural, because I've had a few really kind of mirror what a lot of people have had. I've been both a caregiver and a care recipient. My first few opportunities as a caregiver were really caring for my wife who had surgery, but it was that short term where we had warning. We knew what was coming. I was able to prepare and then help her as we were given guidance as to what to expect. And, you know, it lasted for in one case a month and another case, just a few weeks. But then more recently, within the last couple of years during the pandemic, my wife and I both had become long distance family caregivers for our own parents. In my case, my parents are about a thousand miles away from me. And luckily my brother is close by, but my father started to experience health issues. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's and then he had some vascular issues that really came out of nowhere and we didn't have time to prepare for that. And so, you know, we had to come up with what are the roles that we were bringing on. And for myself, the first role I could bring on because I have the knowledge that comes from my own job is to be able to say, okay, these are the types of things you might want to be looking at. You know, we need to have some conversations, but really what we've settled into with my family is that the best role I can provide is to be respite to make frequent trips back home to give primarily my mother, who is 85 and taking care of my father, to give her a break and to be able to help out there. That's really what they needed. My wife is doing similar things, but we have different challenges with her mother, who is a little bit more isolated, doesn't have that support system. And so for my wife, it's having to coordinate with her siblings who are also very remote from her mother and checking in to see, you know, how can they make sure that their mother is okay, making trips when they need to, finding out that there are surprises where, you know, there's an accident in the home that nobody knew about and, and having to navigate that. So our roles are evolving. It also kind of highlight that for most people, no two situations are going to be the same and you have to do the best that you can. I think the other thing that has been really you know, eye-opening for me was that last year I had an emergency situation where I one day thought I was completely healthy. The next day I'm preparing for emergency heart surgery and got to see firsthand my wife and what she's going through because she's become my caregiver, knowing that I'm going to be in that situation for, for weeks. Roughly the same time she's starting a brand new job that is very high stakes and getting to see what she's going through, what help she needed, you know, what was most valuable. It was a really good appreciation. And again, seeing the differences in care, that understanding, I think, has helped me be better at the job that I do in terms of understanding what really is important to family caregivers and those they care for. Those are great points. Talk about the role evolving, and you may be in multiple roles at the same time. And as we look at particularly demographic trends and the sandwich generation, it seems like the scale of this challenge or opportunity, depending on how you look at it, is increasing. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a big challenge. And so, you know, on, on one hand, we don't really have a system of long-term care in our country. Go back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. It's been family who provides most of the long-term care, particularly as people age. And that's true now. One estimate that is a couple of years old, but there are 48 million people in the United States who are caring for someone who is over the age of 18. Often it's going to be family. It might be a spouse taking care of a spouse. It may be a child taking care of their parents or grandparent, but it's also friends. It's neighbors. There's a lot of folks that are taking that on. And when we look at the numbers per day, it's 66,000 people on average per day become a family caregiver. And in some states, that would be the largest community in the state. And it's a role that provides a great deal of value, but it comes at a cost. So we do estimates at ARP every few years. And the last time we did this, we estimated that those 48 million family caregivers are providing 34 billion hours of care per year. 
And if you put a dollar value on that, you look by state at the, you know, the home care, nursing, and so forth, that it would cost to provide that care, it's $470 billion per year. There's a definite cost, you know, that that's time for family caregivers that they're having to give up. And we're seeing that what they're being asked to do is also changing and even accelerated, I think, during the pandemic. Almost 60% of family caregivers are reporting that they're having to do things that typically in the past would have been done by a medical professional, you know, complex medical nursing tasks, like changing a wound, complex medications, and so forth, that just adds more of that stress, particularly if they're not given the proper training to go along with that. It adds to their stress to prepare. And uh, the demographics also are adding to that landscape, the challenge that we're seeing, because as people age, and we've got the baby boomers who are starting to age, those are the folks that are more likely to need long-term care. And the generations before them, I'm in Gen X, you know, there were fewer of us. So what you're seeing is more people are having to take on the role, but we're seeing an increase as well in family caregivers who are caring for more than one person. So you see that things are really starting to add on. Then on top of that, there are the financial issues. Three quarters of family caregivers are going to spend their own money to care for their loved one. And when we looked at this back in 2020, before inflation took off, that was about $7,200 per caregiver who was spending their own money. When you look at it, depending on what your income level is, that can be as high as 50% of someone's income. It then leads to this cascaded effect where we're seeing people who, to be able to care for a loved one, they stop saving. They maybe dip into whatever retirement savings they have. They tragically stop spending money on themselves. And quite often they're sacrificing their own health care to be able to care for their loved ones. So we see this issue that we need help. <laughs> Caregivers need help. There's that cost that they really go through. As the last point there, the sandwich generation, take everything I just talked about and then add it up a level. Because these are folks who are caring for their children. Think about during the pandemic where children were home, they're having to be a teacher, homeschool. At the same time, they're having to juggle with caring for, for maybe mom. And this is the age group that is most likely to work as well. We know that over 60% of family caregivers in that sandwich generation age group are also working. And so, you know, they need a lot of help. When we look at that from the challenge, you know, it, it's a big challenge that's out there. Definitely. And some of the research that we did together, we heard stories from family caregivers. I remember one in particular told a story about how she had two part-time jobs and gave one up because... She needed to take care of her mom and couldn't afford a professional caregiver and then ended up dropping the second one, which she lost her benefits. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the next question I would ask is, given it's not uncommon to be in this position of needing to provide care, whether it's expected or unexpected, what are some of the things or ways that people are or aren't preparing themselves for this journey? I think the, you got it right on the second part of that. They're not preparing themselves. Ideally, the way that we would do it here in an ideal world is that we would actually probably talk about this in high school and prepare people for this is what's going to be coming. This is a life skill that you need and really get it out to the open. But what we're finding is that really folks aren't doing that. There's roughly three types of people. There are the planners out there. You know, That's maybe a third of the folks that we talk to. And they're actually thinking ahead. They've done some investigating. They've read up. They've actually had a conversation, hopefully, and they've built out a plan where they're going to be able to anticipate and they can jump right into it. Then you've got those folks that when we talk to them, they say, yeah, I know it's going to come, but yeah, you know what? We'll wait until there's an emergency. Why bother with it now? We'll figure it out at that point. And, and then there's a group that basically they're really honest with us. They say, it's something I don't want to think about. And so I'm not going to think about it. What we find is that those last two groups 
they're doing the same thing. You know, when an emergency happens or they find themselves in the middle of some situation that maybe grows into something requiring more of their effort, it's that point that they're having to come in to figure things out. The difference between them and the first group is that they may have 12 hours, 24 hours to figure some of the decisions out, whereas the people who have planned more and had those conversations have hopefully lined things up. We're not going to change that. <laughs> So really, I think the bottom line is that, you know, it still comes down to the same thing. You want to do a couple of things. You want to create a plan. Even if it's, we've got to figure things out in the next 24 hours and, you know, we'll evolve it. It's creating that plan, figuring out what are the key elements that you want to do. There are a lot of great guides that exist in terms of, here's some checklists from a step. Don't do it alone. Form a team. Figure out what are the specific needs that your loved one has. Do an inventory of what they have and they don't have and what you need to keep up and then figure out the plan for what you're going to be doing going forward. So that is one of the key pieces. And then one of the things that we found from a planning standpoint, particularly those that are maybe thrust into things, is to talk to other family caregivers. Like I said early on with my introduction with where I've gone through. Every family caregiver is different, but there are some similarities. So in my case, my father has Parkinson's. Having my mother be able to connect with other family caregivers who care for someone with Parkinson's. That's going to be a little bit more similar in terms of what to expect. Also, what things might work. I work with someone whose husband had ALS, and she found the same thing, that connecting with the ALS Association chapter that was closest to her in her community. And she was able to find out, this is who we trust to put in a ramp in our community. These are the things that you need to do. You know, so those connections are very important and it helps you understand the types of things that you need to plan for and that you might need to anticipate. You talked a bit about the planners, the people who are kind of in denial and in the between. It seems like there's two parts of that as well. So there's the caregiver and then the person receiving the care who may or may not be comfortable having conversations. What are some best practices for dealing with those who maybe don't want to talk about it? I would say some of the best practices, you want to try sooner rather than later. You want to ease into it. You definitely don't want to talk down to the person or ambush them in terms of what you're looking for. And I guess the other thing I would say, and then I'm going to give some examples from my own family where we've done some things. You want to make sure you're including the loved one that you're caring for. It's surprising the number of times where we have people say we're having family conflict. We dig into that a little bit more and it's that, you know, maybe you had three siblings caring for a mother or father and the, the siblings decided that they would create a plan and they had the conversation, but they didn't think to ask dad or mom. We've actually seen some of that in different part of my family. In my own case, given my background and knowing some of the things that were starting to happen with my father, I knew that we needed to have a conversation. And I thought it was a great sign when my father told me that he had gotten a book on how to plan. I thought, well, great. This means he's ready for the conversation. So I asked him, you know, do you want to talk? And he basically didn't answer me. He refused to talk about it. And I realized that he needed to be ready to have that conversation. He needed to be able to process through it, that he was still working through it. We did a couple of things. We talked to younger family caregivers who said, I don't know how to have a conversation with my grandmother about what we need to do, even getting the ball rolling to have a conversation, but I really don't feel appropriate having this big conversation about you know, where she wants to live. We created a series of questions that came out of that. They start with things that are really easy and just get things rolling, but then really move into the forward thinking. So, you know, questions like, Hey, you know, what was your favorite birthday gift of all time and why, you know, what are some of your favorite memories? And then, you know, moving from things like, what was the first car you drove? You're getting a conversation going, 
to things that slowly start moving forward. What's the one thing that you want to do going forward? What would be ideal? If you're having a party to celebrate your life, what music would you want to play? And then we're slowly getting into those bigger discussions about, you know, have you thought about what it is that we want to do, how you're going to be able to live at home and so forth. I did get to the point where my parents, we got halfway through some of those questions, but you know, there was a little bit of resistance when we got to some of the bigger ones, but then they came back to my brother and myself said, you know, we're ready to have the talk, which was great. And they followed checklists that they had found and their version of the talk was, okay, here's where you can find our legal documents. These are the things that we're thinking about. Here's how we've planned our funeral going to the thing that Susie alluded to early on, I had to say, well, let's focus a little more how you want to live. And, you know, what are the things that you want to do? Because we hadn't talked about that. Do you want to live in the home? You know, what's ideal? What's important to you? So we can be thinking about what we need to do to the house and so forth. It's not too long ago that someone had made the point that my parents weren't that uncommon in that for many people, they spend more time planning their funeral than they plan how they're going to live. And so we've tried to kind of focus that and it really puts a positive spin on the conversation, what it is that you need going forward. So through the lens of my own family, trying to take in some of the things that we've learned, I'll say there's been a lot of trial and error. And again, every family is different and your timing is going to be different. But I feel like we went from a place where it was a little bit frustrating because I'm feeling like this is my job. These are the things I should be doing. I can't get my family to talk to me to where we've got a really good open conversation going now that's leading to some really good ongoing conversations. Last time I was with them, they said, we've been thinking that maybe, you know, five, 10 years from now, when we can't get up and down the stairs, we've been looking at some places that they'll do the cooking for us. It's easy to get in and out, but we can do the things that we want to do. You know, we can still see family, see friends, move around and so forth. And so that's a positive because that wouldn't have happened several years ago. Yeah. As we think about people maintaining independence and staying in their home for longer. We've seen many tech solutions that are helping people to do that in positive and honestly a bit creepy kind of ways. <laughs> what is your take on what we're seeing with technology and how it supports caregiving? On one hand, there's no doubt that technology has changed caregiving, but I think that's just because technology has changed everything that we've done. I've been in the role that I'm at at ARP for about 12 years. And when I compare things now to where they were 12 years ago, some of the things that we thought would be amazing, being able to share calendars, have video calls, are now just secondhand. It's something everyone can do, Google apps or calendar, and you can share that. It makes things very easy and you know, takes some of the friction out of things. I think we saw a lot of acceleration during the pandemic with telehealth, which we've been talking about it, but now suddenly it's easier for me and quicker for me and my family to see a physician via video. And it's much better for family caregivers too, because they don't have to get their loved one ready into the car, get to where they're going, get into the building, see the physician, and then come all back home. You can do that from home. It's also easier in terms of you know having to take time off from work. As I said, care has really changed during the pandemic. The physician visits, monitoring at home. Before we started, I was sharing with Jesse that I'm on the East Coast, but I'm still a member of Kaiser Permanente. And with my heart situation, I was able to do cardiac rehab at home, which was great for me, but even better for my wife because I wasn't able to drive. She was going to have to make arrangements to be able to drive me in to do cardiac rehab on a daily basis. And it made it simpler. There was a big difference, I think, there. They also simplified it in a nice way. So it wasn't, here's a complex special watch you need to wear. No, it was, here are the things you need to do. And here are the ways that we're going to help you. If you're comfortable emailing us, 
great. You can send it to us. Here's a spreadsheet that you can use. But if you don't want to do that, don't worry about it. You can call us. We'll figure it out. And I think that gets to one of the pieces that is really key, that technology can be overwhelming. And it's important that you use that technology in a way that is going to work for you in your process. There's a lot of innovation that is happening now in the caregiving space because people see that it's a definite need. We talked about you know setting the landscape, but a lot of times these well-intentioned innovators are thinking technology first. And they're thinking, aha, technology is going to solve the issue. And, and all it's doing is maybe complicating things. It's not taking into account that you know, not everyone's comfortable with technology. It's also not taking into account that I don't need a, a special caregiving calendar because I've got Google calendars. So that's kind of my view on technology. It really should fit into your flow and it should fit into the needs of the people who are, are using it. Jesse, I know you know this. It's really talking to the people who are going to be the users ultimately to make sure that it's going to work for them. Yeah co-design and participatory design is critical for designing for any audience. One final question before we get to the Q&A, if you could just share a little bit of the resources that are provided by AARP for caregivers, that would be great. Yeah, we're probably one of the largest organizations in the country in terms of family caregivers. And it's one of our top priorities. By one estimate, 50% of all family caregivers are using at least one of our resources and not just use it, but they're saying it helps them and they're all free. And so the best place to go really as a one-stop shop is arp.org slash caregiving, which is our caregiving resource center. And that's the place where there's a little bit of customization, but you can find workbooks. And, And when I talked about that planning and creating a plan, we've got a great guide called Prepare to Care. We're going to rename it as the ARP Family Caregiving Guide. But it includes everything from here are the steps that we recommend. Here are some great checklists to go through. We have, from a financial side of it, ARP Financial Workbook for Family Caregivers that was developed by caregivers who have financial background that go through some of the basics that people don't think about in terms of preparing. We've got resource guides that are relevant to each state and our home fit guide, which is a really great place to start if you're starting to think about making changes to the home. But it's not all about ARP. You know, one of the things that we know is that your local organizations are going to be really the place you want to start because everyone's unique in their caregiving. And one of the unique aspects is where you live, what's available to you in your community. Things we recommend for many people, 211, which is the national network of basically resource referrals to social services. It's free. Calling 211 can get you connected to some of those local resources. You're talking to someone in your community. For more complex cases, we really love the folks at the Family Caregiver Alliance out in California. Caregiver.org, I think, is their URL. And while they're California-based, they'll work with anybody. And it's free. Like I said, they're very good, particularly for caregivers who have more complex or ongoing cases. So it's kind of that combination. From ARP, you know, we want to be able to focus on the important things to get you started. But it's ultimately about connecting family caregivers to the, the great organizations that are in the community. Thank you so much for the conversation. And I think we have some Q&A that Susie will lead us through. You are listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. Karen Leach asks, technology for elders is extremely complex for them. Everything needs a login, ordering, electronic check-in for doctor's appointment, 
feels like a blessing and a curse. Any useful tips? No, it, it can be a curse. It can be a blessing too. Less so in my case, because my parents are very comfortable with technology, but in my wife's case, she tends to be tech support. And, you know, being able to do those virtual visits I talk about can be very, very difficult. I think it comes down to technology might not be right for everybody. And you want to look at the comfort that your loved one has. From a caregiver standpoint, the technology may be more useful for you. But I would agree that you really need to assess comfort. During the pandemic, we were talking to a healthcare system in Wisconsin as they started going through and trying to move everything to virtual. And they told us that early on, their physicians started to complain because every first appointment they were having, it actually turned into a tech support where they couldn't get things to work and really the care wasn't occurring. And so they had to learn how to make it simpler, you know, find ways to be able to have someone call ahead of time to make sure things work. So you really need to look at that. I think, you know, as we move on, things will get a little bit easier. We're finding family caregivers who are younger. It's second nature to them. Yeah, I would like to piggyback on this question also a little bit because we have been working with this at, at home with growing older and looking into this too. As an architect, I'm also concerned about this. I'm just wondering how can we get designers of tech tools to design something which is age-friendly or user-friendly? I think this is sort of the main barrier. And has ARP done some work with tech designers on that? We have, but you raise a really good point. I know Jesse, he's got that great human-centered design approach to things. From two perspectives at ARP, I get a lot of companies that call wanting to talk about the great solution they have, and you can tell pretty quickly whether or not they've built it around family caregivers or else they've built it around the technology. Several years ago, we did start up an innovation lab at ARP. The idea being that we could work with companies who had promising ideas and actually help them connect with older users to make the technology easier. So our goal is to work with as many companies as possible to make that better. And I'm certainly seeing, you know, even on the caregiving space where some of the companies that are more open to that advice, you know, they're willing to think a little bit more that it's not just about the technology. One company I worked with recently was really seized on, you know, after talking to family caregivers that the technology maybe was important from a connectivity standpoint that isolation rather than trying to monitor falls. It's been kind of fun watching them because what they're doing is instead of working on their technology, they're spending all their time talking to residents in senior living facilities and learning to see, okay, you've got a pendant right now. Are you even wearing that? Would you be more willing to wear a watch? Okay. If it's a watch, does it need to be a certain size? You know, what are the things that you want on there? And those types of companies, I think are going to be the ones who end up being successful. Yes. Yes, let's hope so. It's an arc of development. And Rachel says, you know, I'm so surprised Apple hasn't come up with a smart product to address this challenge. In a way, I think it has to some extent, if I'm not mistaken, because I know, for instance, people who use Apple Watch for an emergency call instead of a pendant. Yeah, they do. Our experience in talking to them is they do have some of the features, at least in talking to us. They've been reluctant to really focus on that outward because of their brand, not wanting to have it be aged. But you know, my father actually is a good example. He has an Apple watch and he uses the alarm on that for his medication management, as opposed to using a specific app for it. And there's also economic issues. You know, my parents are able to actually afford an Apple watch. That is not something everyone can afford. So you know, you're right. It's there, but it's not for everybody. So Leslie Cohen asks if you have any thoughts on a community network becoming a new caregiving strategy, sort of peer-to-peer -peer caregiving in a way as the village promotes. 
I love the villages. The scale is an issue there. For the people who live there, it works. But from a a socioeconomic perspective, it's not going to be affordable for everyone. But I think the peer-to-peer really is an important aspect. As we started looking at the needs of rural caregivers, we found that a lot of that peer-to-peer was actually happening there. In communities where the children all leave the community and you've got older adults who are starting to connect with their neighbor more and having that interaction. So I, I do think that there's something there in terms of unlocking that peer-to-peer. The villages is one model that works very well for those in those geographies, but there are other models as well. We've seen that in even some Medicare Advantage plans that are starting to add in home care as a benefit in communities where they can't find workers to do that home care. They're using the peer-to-peer saying, you know, you have a friend or a neighbor who could be trained, we'll pay them. And, you know, it's someone who's trusted. So I do think there's definitely something there that, that is really worthy of a lot more exploration. This is so interesting, Bob. Where did this happen, this compensation and training? There are several. So the company that we know is working with several Medicare Advantage plans is called CareLinks. There are other companies as well. Papa is another one. So it's these companies that are coming up and Medicare Advantage, because they're starting to offer in those home care benefits, that's where we've seen it. The first place when talking to the founder of CareLinks that he really discovered it was in rural Arizona where the Medicare Advantage plan existed, but they couldn't find anyone to actually provide the services. And that was where they sparked the idea of saying, let's see if people know anyone and we can use our platform. That's a case where technology actually works well because we can use the platform to train, make sure that they're doing what they need to do. And then the insurance company is going to be able to provide the payment. There are certain situations like that from a Medicaid standpoint, depending on the state waivers that are in place. I think California has that as well, where you can direct that your loved one or friend or family be designated as a caregiver. But in terms of that peer-to-peer, that's what I was referring to. Yeah, that's an interesting development. And concluding this peer-to-peer caregiving discussion, I also want to repeat what Janet Crane says, who is one of the founders of Next Village in San Francisco. They have done a lot of work on caregiving, specific resources, volunteer assistance, hospital visits, support groups, and more. These are all very important. Oh, definitely. Another question from Karen Leach. She asks, when the other spouse becomes the caregiver, any tips or suggestions for making sure that the caregiving spouse doesn't get worn down? This happened to parents. Yeah, it's common, particularly if you have one spouse caring for another one with Alzheimer's, it's not unusual to have the caregiver spouse pass away first. As I think I mentioned early on, quite often caregivers report that their own health suffers, so their physical health, but also their mental health, because they're so focused on the person that they're caring for. You know, from a tip standpoint, it's looking to create a team that you don't need to do it all by yourself. That's one of the first things that creating a plan that we like to talk about. That's also why I'm so concerned about making sure that I get back home to be able to provide that respite, creating that infrastructure. The ability to talk to someone and the support groups is also very important from a couple perspectives. One, it's that isolation, being able to stay connected. And you know, isolation is much greater in family caregivers, particularly among those who are more spousal oriented. The other thing that we found in really diving into what it is that family caregivers consider to be their job. So everyone's different in terms of what they want, but we found some consistent categories that caregivers went through. And just really quickly, one was they knew that they had to get good at navigating through organizations. They were building this expertise. They needed to organize and keep things moving. But the fourth job was they needed to share their wisdom. They wanted to share what it was that they were learning. It's a case of being able to stay connected, 
But also there's a sense that if I'm spending all this time focused, I'm building things, you know, this is important. I want to be able to share. I want to feel some validation and know that what I'm doing is valued and help other people. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that you want to share your wisdom. I haven't even thought about this. Bob, when we were talking in our prep call, you brought up some of those same skills that family caregivers need. And then also talked about how some family caregivers leave the workforce to be family caregivers. And those can appear to be a gap in their career or resume. They're really building those skills, navigating the organization, keeping things moving, being facilitators and being empathetic can actually make them better employees. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're fantastic project managers, the empathy skills. That's one of the things that it's not just ARP, but there are organizations that are working the idea of returnships, helping people return back in and getting employers to understand and actually publicly recognize that I understand that, you know, family caregiver is going to be a really good employee for me. So yeah, that's a really good point, Jesse. Thank you, Jesse, for bringing this up. One other thing about family caregivers is that many caregivers don't see themselves as caregivers. They don't identify as caregivers. That's a really good point. We're using the term here because we can do that. But for the longest time at ARP, we were trying, if you're a family caregiver, come to us. What we learned, and it was part of the same insights from looking at the four jobs that I mentioned, there were two things that we had to do. One, we had to start using plain language that described exactly what people do. Like you're not a family caregiver. I'm a son and I'm providing a break to my mom. I'm helping my family with planning for their future, you know, the things that I'm specifically doing. For some people it might be, I'm paying the bills. For others, I'm providing transportation. The other thing was that family caregivers are busy enough. They don't want to be told you have to go somewhere to get help. They want to be met where they're at. And that's been really key for helping us as an organization help more family caregivers. I think there's still challenges for us. You know, the ideal thing we hear, and I heard it today talking to the family caregiver, is it would be great if family practice, primary care, we could bring that family caregiving aspect right to the center. This is information that you're going to need to care for your husband who was just diagnosed. And that is a big challenge. Those providers are busy. Rachel asked what kind of planning tools are out there for people who maybe are reluctant to plan. There are some good, simple ones. I would point to ARP's Prepare to Care because it's free and it's available and it helps you think through the different aspects. It's more for if you've got a situation that is already happening, but it walks through, here's how you form your team. Here are the steps that you need to take. It's got a great set of checklists that'll help you figure out, okay, where are the gaps that we have? What are the things that we need to keep tabs on? There's actually a really great book and I don't have the, <laughs> the title of it, but it's to the ABA and it's by Sally Hermy. It's basically checklist for family caregivers. It is a fantastic mm -hmm. book. So those are the types of places to start. It depends on, you know, are you planning for yourself? Or are you planning with someone else? If you're planning for yourself, you probably want to make sure that you've got your legal and financial checklist, but then also, you know, thinking ahead to that plan for living as you go along. Yes. And Donna says, we need MDs to ask patients if they're caregivers and or if somebody is caring for them. This is part of the question when you go. Yeah, no, I agree completely. That would be the ideal. Had insurance companies pay for that type of support, I think that would be one way to make that happen. But the most trusted source of information are medical professionals. And we've done research where we ask physicians, we did a physician survey and we said, you know, are you providing support? You know, are you asking people? Are you having conversations? And the physicians tell us, yes, we're talking, we're spending time, we're talking about family caregiving when we see someone. When we look at the flip side of it and we ask the family caregivers, 
is your physician spending time with you? Have they asked you how you're doing? Have they talked to you about family caregiving? And the answer is completely different. So I think there's a little bit of an expectation gap as well. You know, using that human-centered design, it's what is it that the patients really need and open to make some change there. Yeah, it seems just asking the question, knowing what situation your patient is really important. The VA actually has been really focused on embedding family caregivers in the whole care team along the way. And that may be something that we all can learn from. How do we build and make sure that we're talking to the family caregiver, that we're also including them? Because who knows more about what's going on with the care recipient than the person that potentially is spending all day with them? So, you know, building in the healthcare system, I think it's really cute. And I shouldn't be making the impression that there aren't really good organizations that aren't doing this because there are some really good leading organizations that are building in the caregiver into the care team across the country. Diane Sanchez asks if this type of planning might be bundled with the advanced care directives that Kaiser and others ask you to do. You know, you fill out a caregiving plan basically for yourself. That's an observation that we've looked at and, you know, person that I report to was talking about how she was sitting waiting for her husband to go through surgery in the waiting room and everyone coming up to her asking her for help filling out the advanced directive information. And that was her comment is like, it seems like if we're doing that, maybe we can be looking for other information that we can get to people there. I would love to include that in onboarding actually. And then another place is we're rethinking how we do post-surgery communication with patients. And one of the observations I brought is that we do it pretty well at KP, but one of the insights from previous projects is that the materials that are given are written for a patient and the caregiver needs separate instructions on what they can do. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I will say as a Kaiser Permanente patient, my experience has been very positive, but yeah, it's finding other ways to do it. Are there other individuals than the clinicians who can be part of that. My wife was with me when we did the registration to go in for surgery. That was a perfect opportunity to say, you know, are you the caregiver? It's not violating HIPAA, I would think at that point, but I'm not the expert there, but that would be a perfect time to flag her as my family caregiver, be able to give her some information, those types of things. There are a couple of organizations that are looking at more from just the patient experience and how you build that in with caregivers. Sounds like Jesse, you're doing some of that. Yeah, that's great. So Adrian asks, if caregivers do not agree with the plan, or if there's several caregivers who don't agree, is there some organization to mediate or help this decision? I'm laughing because that is something that we experienced in not my direct family, but extended family, because it will come up. And in my extended family, it was a case where the care recipient, my aunt, did not agree with what her children were wanting to do. There are resources, if you want to do it yourself, to read about having difficult conversations. Family dynamics is a big issue with family caregivers, but oftentimes having that mediator or someone that can help is a really good step. In our case, we identified that the area agency on aging in her community had social workers who would do home visits and then would meet with the family. Instead of trying to mediate and say, okay, let's figure out what your plans are. It's like creating a new plan, but getting everybody involved. So, you know, I think bringing that type of mediation involved is a really good one. Your area agency on aging, aging disability resource centers might have resources. Family Caregiver Alliance, I'll also point back to them. They might not do it for you, but they might be able to help you identify what type of mediators are available. Yes. And I think what you just mentioned also in terms of mediation relates to what Rachel says. People often just don't know what the caregiving options are in their community. 
Right. That's why I keep talking about a plan. It's like, you don't know what you don't know. And talking to someone to understand what are the options, what are the programs specific to your state that might help you as a family caregiver? Are you eligible? You know, you don't have to do all that navigation yourself. And the area agencies on aging are a really good place to start with that. Yes. And I'm just curious, Bob, have you done sort of your own caregiving plan? My wife and I have thought about it. It's more of a living plan. It's less of a caregiving plan. We live in Washington, D.C. right now, and we can't wait to move out. (laughs) Someplace a little more quiet. But as we've been looking at what's important to us, we want to make sure there's healthcare nearby. We want housing that is going to be one story and that's going to help us. We want to make sure that there are social services nearby. So we've been starting to go through that checklist and saying, what are the things that are going to be important for us as we're living? making sure that we have the support as we age, and then making sure that as we need family caregivers or we need caregivers, that either we have the ability to then move closer to family or tap into those who might be near us, get to that peer-to-peer as we talked about. So yes, we don't have a fully formed plan yet, but we've got an outline that is guiding our decision-making right now. Excellent. (laughs) Jesse, do you have any other last comment before we conclude this wonderful conversation? Thank you so much, Bob. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you both, Jesse and Susie. Thank you, Bob and Jesse. And thank you, everybody, for showing up and for asking good questions. We all learn from each other. And I want to make one last pitch. We are mostly volunteer-based, so we appreciate any donations which help us to really provide this kind of programming and conversations. Thank you, everybody. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide, and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.